0: Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast. For me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day and truly it is a fantastic day because we're above ground and sometimes that is as much as you can ask for. And sometimes in our life we get we get reminders served on a silver platter that gratitude is so important. And and my guest today is no different there because one day life is just so smooth and well (laughs) more or less smooth let's say like that and then crash literally crash and today we're gonna talk about trauma not just in the emotional sense which is a key issue in my show But sometimes real trauma occurs, real violence occurs in our lives, and that changes everything. And today I've got Colleen Murphy with me. Murphys don't quit. Yes, yes. When I saw that headline, I knew, okay, I need to get this woman onto my show. So today we've got Colleen Murphy here with me. Welcome to my show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: An absolute pleasure. As I said, normally I would ask, uh, you know, what would, did you want to be? Who, who did you want to be when you were a young girl? Uh, today, I think we can fast forward through that that getting to know section because it would be far more telling who you were 24 hours before violence hit your family.
1: Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, so, you know, Obviously, you know, when you have a traumatic event, you can separate your life in chapter one and chapter two. So the last day of chapter one, um, I'm in the mother of seven. So my life is always kind of hectic. But, you know, I was finally getting to a place where it wasn't as hectic. You know, I was a stay-at-home mom for 20 years. I had two of my kids were out on their own, financially independent, doing well, you know, living life, doing better than I had ever expected. I had two more in college and that left four at home. So I was, you know, typical Friday afternoon, I was shooting out of work just a little bit early because my um, my 17 year old daughter had a high school soccer game and I had just left my office, you know, life was great as far as I knew, you know, I had pretty much everything, but the picket fence. I had a happy marriage, happy life, you know, nice home. We're finally in a place financially where it wasn't a struggle, you know, with, if you can imagine having seven kids, you know we were constantly struggling. Um, We also put them all through private Catholic school, which was really important to us. But it was a sacrifice that we made, which was really a sacrifice financially. But anyway, we were finally at a place where, you know, we could go out to dinner if we wanted. It was it was life was good. Life was better than good. But I like I said, I had left work and I got that dreaded phone call, you know, that every parent fears. And, you know, as soon as I got that call that my daughter was critically injured in a bad accident, You know, my life as I knew it was done. It was over. I was now going to start this next chapter, which, you know, wasn't pretty. And it wasn't something that I signed up for. But, you know, here I was. You know, that's just what we do. You know, we can't, you know, life sometimes throws you a curveball and they're not always pretty.
0: What exactly did occur with your daughter?
1: So she was um, on a business trip in Los Angeles. She lived in New York. She lived in Manhattan at the time. Um, And she was on a business trip and she was training for the New York Marathon. And she just simply went out on a morning run and was hit by a car. as She was crossing the street and she was hit at over 45 miles an hour. And because she was not running with ID, she was also a Jane Doe for several hours, which was as a mom, that was an extra layer of pain that, Nobody knew who she was. I mean, it didn't make a difference in the big picture picture, but you just picture your child laying there, face without a name, fighting for her life, and none of us knew, you know, so that was that was an extra layer of, of hardness for us.
0: How badly was she injured? As I'm so, an Sorry, guys, I'm an anesthetist. So for yeah. me, immediately, I want to get the facts right because um, yeah, yeah, I yeah. automatically think, oh, God, okay, what do I need to do? So, sorry, nature overtakes here me. Uh, no, so no, that's body, good. What happened?
1: Okay, so when she was hit, um, from what witnesses told us, she flew straight up in the air, 10 feet, came back down her head, hit the windshield, and she cartwheeled through the air and landed another 30 feet in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard. Um, and she had no broken bones, um, other than her skull. She, well, actually I take that back. She had a broken scapula, but there's nothing they can do for that. It's kind of like a collarbone. Her iPhone was not even cracked, but she was brought to the hospital with severe head trauma. Um, and it was, you know, the first thing they did was they drilled holes in her skull. To try to relieve the pressure, did that obviously wasn't doing the trick. So they had to go in and remove part of her skull. And at this point, they still hadn't identified her. Um, I got the call once they did finally identify her, just moments away um, from when she went in for surgery. And at the airport, I got the call that surgery was over, and they had to do a um, lobectomy, which um, is they removed the uh, left temporal lobe um, because the damage was so severe. So. At the time of you know being in the airport and getting that call, my, you know, I don't know a lot about brain surgery. My first thought was, will she ever be able, if she lives, will she live a normal life? And when I asked that question, the ICU nurse said, I don't know. So now I know part of her brain is removed, her. ICPs, which is intercranial pressure, we learned all kinds of stuff about um, brain swelling, was very, very severe. And that was the biggest threat to her at that point, that her brain was swelling so quickly that we didn't know if she was going to be alive when we arrived. So, you know, we were at about a four-hour um, plane ride, plus we had a connecting flight. So, you know, we left, you know, I get the news at about 4 o'clock p.m., and it was midnight L.A., in the morning st louis time where we live by the time we got there and you know during that window of time you know we just had no idea you know we just hoped and prayed that she would still be alive when we got there
0: goodness gracious and regrettably that is such a common scenario um the if you look at statistics and see how many people die in a road traffic accident for each one of Mm -hmm. these people there are three people out there who have got a massive brain injury that inevitably changes their lives Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: when i say massive ie they survive but you do not know what damage there is and uh regrettably there's often severe damage and therefore these are these are the three that are called severe brain injuries and then there are another 10 where there's milder forms of head injuries out there so actually if you look at the burden of 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 trauma and the burden of head injuries to society it's huge it's absolutely huge yet no one seems to be much talking about it it is it is sort of yeah okay had a knock on the head. And if you see people in in, uh, in any kind of movie, they get a bang, whacked out, mm-hmm. then he wakes up <laughs> yeah. and he goes on.
1: Yeah, yes, about that. Exactly. About yeah. that,
0: okay? So, yeah. but we're going to come to that, okay? Sorry, I'm jumping the yeah. gun a little bit, uh, but no. I wanted to give you a, a background, the scene, how important that is. Whilst Colleen is so kind to share her story and, and give hope to other survivors, the reality is there are shitloads of them out there and but they're all Mm -hmm. suffering in silence and many of them do and that's that's what i find so amazing that i've got you on my show to actually uh, put the the torchlight onto that that fact Mm -hmm. so there you were finally reaching the hospital and knackered because a whole day had passed and half of a night had passed for you um how did this story continue
1: So when we arrived, you know, and it was when we got to her room, it was almost like we were walking in quicksand, you know, just to get to her bedside. And I worked in a hospital setting on the insurance side, but so I'd seen head injuries. So I knew exactly what I was walking into, but my poor husband, you know, I I mean, it just knocked the wind out of him. And had there not been a chair um, to catch him, he would have been on the floor as soon as he saw her. She was unrecognizable. Her face was black and blue and swollen, not from the accident, but from the actual brain surgery. Um, she was just completely unrecognizable. And it was, you know, as we walked in, you could see the whole ICU unit just kind of turned and all eyes were on us. You know, they were waiting for us to arrive and you could just, you could feel, you could feel the love, but you could also feel the sadness for all of them to see us walking in. Cause they knew once we crossed that threshold, life would never be the same. And we, we had an intern that um, came to talk to us. And I don't know, I mean, he was probably more than an intern resident, whatever. I don't know what the terminology is that they use, but he was the one that was there, you know, on call and in charge of everything. And when he came and I think brain surgeons are not known for their personalities. (laughs) So, (laughs) so he wasn't the greatest warm and fuzzy guy, but, you know, he explained to us, you know, what was going on and that if, if she survived and that word, if I was really stuck on that, we were looking at months, possibly years of recovery. And as we kind of sat there, you know, taking it all in, too afraid to ask a question because we didn't really want to know the answer. He stood there in awkward silence. And then as he turned to leave, he said, your daughter is the sickest patient in this whole hospital. And then turned to leave. And, you know, I just kind of wanted to call BS. This is a big hospital. I wanted to go knock on every door and find somebody who was worse (laughs) off than my kid because, you know, I didn't want to hear that. Um, and, And luckily, the next morning, we met the actual brain surgeon that actually performed the surgery. And he will always have a soft spot in my heart because he was not Dr. Gloom and Doom. You know, he gave us that little dose of positivity that we needed, but he didn't candy coat it. You know, what he said to us was, you know, right now I'm looking for the positive or something positive to give you. I'm having to dig very, very deep. But if I reach back far enough, it's there. And that's all I needed.
0: Oh beautifully, beautifully said. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. That is that is exactly how I look at, at, at cases like that too. But we as doctors would be would be idiots and and stupid to tell you no no, it's gonna be all fine. Because Yes, exactly. No, no, you need to prepare mm-hmm. uh the relatives, You need to prepare. You need to be honest. And yes. I had to break in my life so many bad news in intensive care mm-hmm. as an anesthetist. And yeah. ir- without fail, people were grateful for the truth. There's no two ways around that. I was never hammering it in the sense of, unless it was absolutely clear, then that's yeah. a different story. But in such cases, uh, it is, yeah. Give that a little bit of glimmer of hope, but put it into perspective. What this colleague realized was that there is a thing called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is an amazing thing of the brain, where essentially the brain is not like... When I started studying, I was told the brain is formed in utero as a baby, and that's it. Bang. Thereafter, it's all hardwired. Nothing can change. That's not true. Neuroplasticity is a beautiful, beautiful thing where the brain says, oh shit, that part is dead. Let's see if I can rewire something. And it's a bit like MacGyvering um, (laughs) the American series where the guy Mm -hmm. made anything out of everything. Um, So that brain can do the same. So there's a tremendous amount of ability to actually restore function. Not create miracles uh, but to maybe work around obstacles i.e damage that is in the brain so this beautiful neurosurgeon he knew what he was saying and that is we we see it now more and more with modern rehabilitation what can be achieved that's so beautiful so here was the man who gave you that glimmer of hope and yeah. you you no longer try to open every door to see if there's someone sicker there um but it is <laughs> it is it is very traumatic isn't it because mm-hmm. they yeah. it is yeah. it is sorry what is what is hard it is uh, if you if you guys can't imagine that and i hope you guys have actually never been in that story but if you were in colleen's body walking in there you would see someone you love that you virtually can't recognize but that person is having a little tube through the mouth in the windpipe there might be another tube through the nose or through the mouth going into the stomach there will be tubes coming out of every hole and if there wasn't a hole we have made it so yeah. it is actually looking incredibly traumatic there are drips everywhere uh machines are beeping and and it is one of the scariest things you can imagine if you have never been in that scenario how the hell did you function i mean you yourself <sighs> as a mum I mean, you, yeah. you walked into that and thought, what the hell?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my husband and I took on very different roles. And and it's, it's funny that we took on the opposite roles that we normally take in. You know, he was the one that was fielding all the phone calls and responding to people on social media. I'm the one that was always on Facebook and always on social media. And I completely shut down. He was also dealing with our other kids at home. For me, I couldn't even... I pretty much shut out my other children, which is terrible. But I think looking back, it was because I knew I couldn't answer hard questions, and if they asked me if she was going to survive, I don't think I could admit it to myself that that things were looking like she was not going to survive. So I just kind of avoided my children and um, and let my husband deal with with most of that and all the people at home because. We have a big network from having such a large family and all the soccer teams and all that everything that, you know, people were doing things for us from home. And he was he was coordinating hotel rooms and points and all of that stuff. And I just stayed at her bedside and didn't move. And my husband, alternatively, couldn't stand to be in that room. He could not. And I noticed, you know, a couple of days in when he did come in the room, he would pull a chair over and turn it to face me. You know, dads are fixers and we couldn't fix this and could not even, you know, turn around and look at it. It was just too hard. You know, he stayed up in the waiting room and fielded all the phone calls and did all the things that we needed to do. But he just couldn't sit there and watch machines keeping our daughter alive.
0: At the same token, I'm so pleased because as parents, we feel so powerless in such a situation. You know there's nothing that you possibly could do will make a blind bit of difference. And that that helplessness, uh, often combined with hopelessness, is pure, pure torture. Yet here he was able to do something for his daughter and his family, yet uh, focus on fixing. And that is what we often do very, very well. One of the worst things what my wife can do to me is give me a whole day of her... Uh, suffering crap daily grind and then say, look, I I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen. Yes.
1: Exactly. So at least if men was... could just learn the difference, <laughs> men, that would be really good for all of us. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> true. They always have all the answers.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, even, you know, that is how we are hardwired. So at least yeah. there was one way out for him to keep his sanity by actually taking on the role of the provider the role of the the man who is keeping it together in the background and that is beautiful Mm -hmm. that is what you need so there is no right and wrong it is just how do you deal with a challenge of such magnitude and you both found ways but whilst he was busy keeping himself busy um Mm -hmm. you were there uh, stewing in your own juices, really. If I look, mm-hmm. if if yeah. if I interpret it the way you are, um, yeah. Uh. How did that yeah, go? And we
1: made a pact early on to stay on the same page. You know, it wasn't going to do anybody any good if we were at each other's throats. So that was something that we really stuck to. And I'm so glad that we did early on because something like this can really tear a family apart. And I'd be lying if I would say that there weren't hard times, but I think we had a solid foundation to start. But I think for people that don't, you know, it just crumbles. And, you know, Honestly, we had rough times, but we we tried to stay on the same page. I knew we were at a crossroads when one day we were leaving the, the hotel on the way to the hospital. And he was chomping on an apple and I was ready to take that apple and throw it at him because I thought, okay, now we're back to normal. <laughs> you know, because Now this is normal stuff or in a car. I'm like, seriously, do you not know how to eat an apple without making that much noise? But, you know, we really made sure that we tried to, you know, make sure that we were in a good place as well. And, you know, obviously there were a few times in there that slipped in, but we, we did a good job at keeping it together.
0: And that's one of the things that I, tell my my relatives my patient are told nowadays i do private practice so no longer the intensive care trauma (laughs) major stuff but it was always the same that that i taught the relatives that they need to learn to look after themselves it's no good that they spend 24 hours 48 hours 72 hours non-stop without sleep next to the bed of their loved ones who we look after because they're so sick um now make sure you get Water, food, sleep, yeah. that you go out and actually ground yourself somewhere in nature and then come back. So things like that and it is it is so 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 important. So seemingly you were actually able to do so and we're we're guided Eventually. the right way. <laughs> hey?
1: Yes. So it's, you know, that's the first thing they told us in the ICU is you need to go go get some rest, you know, go back to the hotel. And, you know, moms, moms don't do that. And I think it was day four that Lauren's roommate, you know, she finally came to me and said, You stink. Go home, change your clothes, brush your teeth, and come back. I got this. <laughs> so I wore that outfit um for four days. And it's funny because that shirt sure still hangs in my closet. And when I did my when I was finished with my book and I did my author photo. I wore that shirt in my author photo because it was like a full circle moment for me because that was the shirt that, you know, I could probably stand on its own after four days. But it was one of my work shirts because I didn't even change clothes. I was coming home from work. I was still in my work clothes when I got there. And um, so eventually I did, I think it was four days before I would go home. I would, you know, shower, sleep, come back, repeat. And, you know, but it did take a while before I would leave the hospital.
0: But you're still in a sprint whilst you're actually running a marathon, <laughs> an mm-hmm. ultra-endurance event. Uh, that is yeah. really what it is. Yeah. So when was there the first sign of hope that your daughter gets better? Often enough, we keep <sighs> a tube in and we keep the patient artificially asleep for 24, 48 hours and then stop the sedation to see who is at home. And sure, if anyone is actually at home, so, so how did it go?
1: Okay. So she emerged from her coma at about two weeks, you know, which is what we wanted. You know, she'd finally opened her eyes, but it wasn't like the movies. And when her eyes were open, she looked worse. You know, it was just the blankness and it was tough. It was tough to look at her like that. And I remember so many times thinking, God, forgive me, but just please close your eyes, go back to sleep. I couldn't stand to see her like that because I thought, is that our future? You know, she was in a semi, she couldn't move, she couldn't move her limbs. And at some point, you know, they had her her arms tied to the bed. And at some point, nursing staff came in and untied her because she wasn't capable of moving her arms. And it was just a really... Hard time for me. You would think you'd be happy that your loved one is no longer tied to the bed, but it was, they knew that she, she wasn't capable of doing anything on her own and they could only get her to respond to pain by pinching. They would pinch like the inside, the fatty part under her arm. And sometimes like at her knees and she was just completely bruised from all the pinching because, you know, every couple hours, actually in the beginning, every hour, every half hour, they would do these neuro checks and, she would respond on her left side, but on her right side, it was an abnormal response, which is I'm sure you know because you're in the medical field. Posturing, so everything like turned the other way, which is a sign of severe brain damage and not a lot of brain function. So we had that for for weeks, and I think the first time I realized she's still in there because they would come in and say, "Show me two fingers," do you know all that stuff? The neuro checks and nothing. I mean, just. Blankness, nothing. She couldn't even focus on anyway. And they suggested like put something over her face, like a towel or something and see if she would move it. And it was probably three weeks and maybe four weeks. And we put a washcloth over her face and she eventually slowly moved it down. We actually have that on video and she looks terrible, but you can hear us cheering and jumping up and down in that ICU room. Like she just won the decathlon. And it was, that was the sign I needed that she's still in there. You know, even though she looks right through me, she's in there. Um, And, and then we would do, give me a high five and we would hold her wrist up because again, she couldn't move her limbs and she did this. And then, you know, it was like, okay, we got this, you know, that was, that's, you know, as soon as I was at my, you know, my, my low point, something would happen to where she would show me something that she's in there. And at one point she squeezed my hand, this was back up a few weeks earlier and the nurse told me it was a reflex. And I was like, that's not a reflex. I knew she was in there. And it probably was a reflex looking back, but I needed to believe that it wasn't because, you know, I would be holding her hand and say, squeeze my hand and, it would take 10, 15 minutes before I would get a squeeze, but it was a reflex. And it was, you know, I had to believe that myself to to keep to keep going.
0: And again, I hear a lot of beautiful, beautiful determination there, hope. Two situations that come to my mind. One is you didn't actually appreciate the severity of it. Mm-hmm. And just to, to turn it negative now, derogatory, you watch too much tally um, yeah, where yeah, people yeah. actually wake up. Because if I hear posturing for days and weeks without end, posturing typically means that a patient doesn't make it. So mm-hmm. it is as a rule of thumb, once you yeah. see that, you just think, oh, God.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and if and, she and I can it,
1: see that they felt that, you know, they – you could see it in their faces that they didn't think we were going to come out of this. Um, and my husband felt that way, but I I played the positive poly game and I think it was probably looking back a little bit of denial, but, good,
0: but good. that's okay. Uh, that, that's okay. That is one survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. There is nothing wrong with that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's be very clear. However you respond to trauma, that is what you need to do at that moment in time. If it is anger, mm-hmm. resentment, uh, crying your eyes out, whatever it is. That is, these are waves of emotions that wash over you and they will change as quick as a woman's mood changes. So it is, you know, it is what it is. Yes, exactly. (laughs) No, Lisa, put that knife down. Okay, my wife is just, no, no, sorry, kidding, 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 kidding. (laughs) No, it is, the reality is, it is what it is. Guys, emotions are emotions, and you need to mm. to learn to move with them and recognize them for what they are. That is, that is, you are going through your own journey, and here you were. I mean, we are still in the in the early aftermath, but you kept your hope somehow,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and for that I commend you. That is uh, beautiful. And then, but you were you were cheered up by a little, tiny but measurable improvements. And when there was the first time a bit of recognition coming through, beautiful. Again, for Mm -hmm. me as a doctor to say, wow, this was now, what, three, four weeks um, before there was a bit Mm -hmm. of movement coming through? Oh, boy. I know already that all her muscles, all her nerves in her peripheral body, anything out there apart from the brain, they have gone to sleep too. So that is what we call atrophy or neuropathy where the nerves are just getting sick uh, from yeah. doing nothing, lying yeah. there in bed. Inevitably, that happens with everyone who is for a long time unconscious or indeed in intensive care and can do very little due to sickness.
1: So for me too, when they would move her every two hours so she didn't get bed sores and they would have yeah. to bring in one or two people to, on the counter three sometimes that was harder to watch than the actual procedures that they performed on her because she was just so lifeless and so broken. And just sitting there watching her brokenness was, it was really, really tough.
0: How did you deal with that?
1: Um, You know, what, my faith helped me through a lot of that. Um, And I think, again, moms just go into survival mode and I I don't know that I really even did deal with it. I think I just, you know, kept that positive front. And I think, you know, months later, um, I did have some issues with some of the things that I witnessed dealing with um, that came out kind of in night terrors. Um, And I, you know, a doctor said that I have PTSD from that. I have a daughter that works, used to work in a children's ICU in the PICU. And she's like, no, mom, it's actually a thing. They have support groups for PTSD for ICU moms. And I'm like, ICU moms, you know, they're in the trenches. But, you know, to me, it's like, I don't deserve that title. That's for people in combat. But, you know, I guess in a sense, we were in combat. No, You were? But it, Yeah. So at the time, I think I just, you know, probably absorbed it all, but didn't deal with any of that until, you know, months later, till we were out of the woods.
0: And when you say out of the woods, let's fast forward a bit. Because mm-hmm. this, is not, this is not a film that you want to watch second by second. Because yeah. improvements in, in the recovery of, of head-injured people take days, weeks, months. Years. Um, yes, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Actually, yes. And it yeah, is ongoing yeah, yeah. now as we speak. Yes. So yes. tell us a bit what were sort of the steps and how treacle slow did they actually happen?
1: Okay. So we left, um, we were at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, which is kind of hospital to the stars. Um, But we left there, I think it was about six weeks later, we were in ICU for five weeks and which is a long time in ICU, as you probably know, you know, they usually, you either don't make it out or you get out of there fairly quickly. So once she was medically stable, she um, was taken to a rehab center in Chicago which is the other side of the country, um, for with the private medical jet, which was, you know, um, not exactly how I envisioned taking a private jet. I didn't think it was ever going to be on my bucket mm-hmm. list, but you mm-hmm. know, here I was. And when she arrived to the rehab center, she was a really, really rough shape. Couldn't hold up her head. You know, she still had her trach. She was breathing on her own, but still was getting like, um, she was getting like room air and then eventually they used her trach just to suction out the fluid because as you know um when you're not up moving around you know fluid tends to you know settle in your lungs which she also dealt with pneumonia early on too and fevers and all that again we're giving you the condensed version um and once she got to rehab and again this was one of the best rehab countries uh, rehab centers in the country so we were very very lucky that she was accepted and she started advancing rather quickly. Um, by quickly, I mean, when they stood her up, she took a step, but she still had her head hanging down and she, her, her right arm was stuck in this position because the damage was so severe on the left. Um, and, you know, she still was unaware of her surroundings. I don't know. She didn't know where she was. I don't think she knew who we were. I don't even think she knew who, knew who she was. I mean, she was basically existing, but because she was an athlete, Her body was responding well to therapy. She may not have known what was going on around her, but when they stood her up, she couldn't stand up on her own, but she she knew how to take a step forward. So things advanced rather quickly um, as far as the physical aspect. Um, Speech, she was still nonverbal. Speech was slow. OT was slow. They basically just put like an iPad in front of her and had her watch movies and Sometimes I said she tracked, which I don't think she really tracked, but I think it's okay. I'll take it. They gave her a win on that, but it was months before she was more awake and still no expressions on her face. No, I mean, basically she just existed. Um, and it was, it was really, really tough. Once she started becoming verbal, it was the automatics. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Um, she could maybe count to like four or five. And the doctors would say, you know, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, this is fabulous. But the doctors would be like, yeah, that's because it's an automatic. Your brain doesn't have to process. Those are just the automatic things. But, you know, sometimes I'd be like, can you just give us a win? Just just once or twice. So that whole re- rehab process, she was there. Um, so the accident was April. And by the time she was discharged to home from the rehab center was August 24th. So she was in the hospital. I think it was like one hundred and. 27 days or 167 days. I can't remember, but I think it was 167 days. Um, And when she arrived home, she was walking very unsteady with a gait belt. Um, She was down to probably 90 pounds. She was still on a feeding tube. Um, She didn't, she didn't respond well to the feeding tube and was constantly throwing up. Mm. She had had another brain surgery while she was um, in the rehab center. So she had four brain surgeries total. Mm. Um, And she was, kind of a shell of herself. So then came, okay, now what, you know, I'm in charge. I have to help piece her back together in the outpatient rehab. And, you know, we had so many escaping rehab because she hated it and was confused and it was just tough. I mean, we tried to get her in front of the best specialists and just hope for the best, but she was a shell of herself for, oh gosh, years. Oh, well. Well, I shouldn't say years. I should say probably at least a year and a half, and nonverbal for close to two years. Other than those automatics, I mean, we couldn't have a conversation for probably three years. And she had severe aphasia, which you probably know what that is. And it's you know a language disorder that you know it's caused by damage to the brain. And in Lauren's case, that piece was removed, so we had to wait on neuroplasticity for her to be able to speak again fluently, which she still struggles, but it's so much better. You know, I used to get just want her to say something. Now I get mad at her for what she does say. So we're definitely at a crossroads, you know, so it's, she's definitely improved enough to wear and that F word knows how to fly. <laughs> you know? So, so she definitely, uh, she can be a real pain in the rump, but we're still actually grateful for where we are.
0: How many years down the line are you now?
1: So we will be nine years in April. So we're at about eight and a half. Um, and, you know, we're still improving. It's slow. I mean, it is very, very slow. And it's hard for me to see as her primary caregiver. Um, but it's nice when we run into people that haven't seen her in a long time and they can really see the change.
0: Wow. Nine years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Your marriage is still together. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you deal with that half a million dollar medical bill? Um,
1: well... This was actually, actually, I think her number was at like 2 million, but we were, and and more, but we were very, very fortunate because she was covered under workman's comp insurance because she was on a business trip. Um, She was covered and it was kind of like we had a golden checkbook because it was in their best interest for her to recover. And so she got the best of the best. And, you know, we've met so many people on this journey that did not have, that resource that we did. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like that survivor's guilt. You know, I feel guilty for the things that we, we had at our disposal. Um, so that, that was again, very, very helpful. And I, I think really helped her recovery, but I think the main thing of her recovery was her and her tenacity. You know, the resources obviously were a big factor, but she was the biggest factor.
0: I would challenge that I would actually say that you and your family oh. were the biggest factor a, a while ago there was a beautiful article or beautiful uh, research where they tried to find out if you take children with cerebral palsy mm-hmm. and so brain uh, damage from birth and later down, many years later if you put them into a hyperbaric chamber and mm-hmm. give them high doses of oxygen would they improve versus a control group where they just had standard physiotherapy and standard things and try to see is there a difference to their surprise there was no difference but also to their surprise both groups dramatically improved because the children were just not put in front of a telly somewhere into a corner yeah we deal with that but actually, the parents took control mm-hmm. and were interactive, worked with the children, and these children. I mean, he, he, there is was neuroplasticity and then there is was, there was hopelessness, and and ultimately, you wouldn't expect too much of improvement. Yet here mm-hmm. they were; these children did improve, um, and that was because of their parents suddenly g- gave a damn. So therefore, mm-hmm. extrapolating from that, I think you are the crucial factor yeah. in her well, recovery. Thank you. And I think in
1: the beginning, yeah, but at the point we're at now, I think it's, it's passed on to her and she was always such a tenacious fighter and I tease, we have a sick sense of humor and one of my other kids who's not exactly the go-getter that Lauren is, I always say, if that was you, I would just throw a sheet over your head, (laughs) which I really would not have. (laughs) That's just me being my sick sense of humor. I totally would not have done that. But, um, so you, you know, you have to know, you have to know your patient and I know, you know, obviously I would have done that for each one of my kids, but, um, humor was the other factor that got us through, you know, because you have to have a sense of humor and sometimes brain injury can be funny and sometimes aphasia can be funny, you know, there's. You know, there's so many things that when she would say, we would just be crying, laughing. I mean, one time my husband was out shoveling the snow and she looked out the window and saw him and she said, that makes me so sad. And I'm like, what? And she went, Vietnam. <laughs> I'm Like, what? Oh.
0: Like,
1: where, where did that come from? Oh.
0: <laughs>
1: so I'm like, shoveling snow in Vietnam. And, you know, that was way before your time. So it's like, you know, aphasia can be funny. You know, she just, you don't know what word's going to come out. And, you know, we just had to laugh.
0: Did she get angry about it or could she laugh herself?
1: Now she can laugh at herself. I think she didn't really understand at that point in her recovery um, what she was saying or even that it was wrong. Mm. Um, But, you know, now she can laugh at herself. Um, Sometimes she gets frustrated, but she she does have a good sense of humor, which is Mm. good.
0: Because if you look at at Alzheimer patients and patients who are not getting better but start to deteriorate, mm-hmm. it's so frustrating if they still got the insight um mm-hmm. to actually see that what comes out is so bizarre or mm-hmm. that that certain things that have defined them they were really good in maths uh and now suddenly they can't do one and one. Or have yeah. difficulties paying the money with the few coins that they have got drives them nuts and leads leads to outbursts of anger. Were yeah. there outbursts as part of the brain injury? How was her mood developing over yeah. those eight years?
1: Good question. You know, so we luckily didn't have the anger piece um, that a lot of people do, and I and I think too it depends on what what portion of the brain is damaged. Absolutely. Also personality beforehand, you know, which she was never in, you know, she was aggressive in career wise and things internally, but never an aggressive personality. Um, so we did not have that. We would have a lot of frustration or confusion. Like I said, like when she, she would leave therapy and I would be out in the parking lot struggling with her. Um, you know, trying to get her to come back in. So we would have a lot of that type of stuff, but not so much anger, thankfully, that we didn't have that. And she was always very appreciative of me. And even still to this day, almost, almost too appreciative. I'm like, I'm always like, I'm really not that great. You know, sometimes I'm crabby and sometimes I'm not the nicest to her. You know, there's, she's hard sometimes, you know, and she can be very frustrating, but I'm sure I'm hard and I'm sure I'm frustrated. So, you know, I'm not, you know, obviously I'm a good advocate for her, but I'm not always perfect. You know, and it, there's times where I'm just having a bad day and I'm crabby and it's not fair to her. And my mood affects her day, you know, that, which is a lot of pressure because I know if I wake up feeling like I don't want to face this day, I know that she can't face the day. So that's a lot of pressure. And, you know, even now, sometimes, you know, although now she's getting better when I'm crabby, she'll just go to my husband and be like, oh, I can't stand mom. (laughs) I'm like, but that's good because that's normal. And that's what I wanted. You know, I I told one of my friends once early on, I'm like, I just want to I want her to wake up and just call me a bitch again. And she's like, she'll call you a bitch again. And she has. So I'm like, again, here we are. Um, Never did a word sound so sweet because it was like, "Okay." we we get a little normalcy here and sometimes i deserve it
0: wow girl you are you're good and that <laughs> is spoken with a clear head today with hindsight i mm-hmm. bet a large sum of money that that was not always the time because bottom line is when you're tired down and out frustrated uh, because the rest of your life is going on as well, and there are mm-hmm. challenges, ch- challenges from everyone around you at oh, yeah. times. <laughs> and you think, "What the hell? What now? Yeah. Is that is that all you can throw at me?" And guess what? Yes. More comes. Wham, bam, 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 bam. Oh yeah, yeah. That is, I mean, these are the moments that that you doubt, and that you really mm-hmm. are getting angry. Certainly, I do, and I postulate that you do the same. Uh, there mm-hmm. are times when you are. Absolutely frustrated. How did you deal with that?
1: Ah, you know, I don't, you know, I have a, a wonderful spouse, which is, you know, I think key. And I think the times where I was just at my lowest, he was the only one that really knew. You know, I would keep a brave front because I had to keep it together. I had six other kids and I'm their example. And there were so many nights where I would, you know, and I, I talk about this in the book too, that I perfected the silent cry. I'm not a crier. And there were so many nights where I would just roll over and just the tears would just be flooding my pillow because my days were hard. They were really, really hard. But when I had hit my breaking point, my husband would step in and, you know, do, you know, take over and give me a break. And then I would feel guilty for needing a break. And it's, it's just like a vicious cycle that mom built. Um, so, um, but I would just, um, I, I would, I guess the best way I had to deal with it was just that I had a confidant and, and my spouse and he truly is my best friend. And you know, I make fun of him a lot in the book. Um, he always says there's 100 pages about Lauren and 200 of me making fun of him. And, you know, one of my early readers said, I love the way Dave came across as just this great, big, lovable idiot. And I was like, that's perfect, because that was I did want it to come across as as lovable. But sometimes he really can be an idiot. But that's what I love about him. Um So. That was, I, you know, he was really my rock through all of it. And, you know, I, I don't think I could have done it without him. And he picked up the slack with the other kids because with the other kids I'm getting hit, you know, constantly with other things, you know, I was getting hit with, you know, underage drinking. I had teenagers now mom's gone. So there's no curfew, you know, they can, you know, pull the wool over dad's eyes easily, you know, they can do whatever. So, you know, they were still in the grieving process, but they're also like, Hey, I have no rules. And, you know, I'm always the disciplinarian dad's Mr. Fun guy. So, you know, I also had to deal with making sure I could rein in the other kids, making sure their grades are still good and making sure they still can do the things that they did when I was still there because Lauren and I traveled all around the country. You know, I, I mapped out the amount of days that I was gone again, mother's guilt. And in a three year period, I was out of state 404 days, which ironically is the error message you get when a page isn't found on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) My son noticed that. So, um, so, I mean, they, you know, it it was tough and it's, you know, I just, I just had to find, you know, you just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps as, 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 you know, I'm old school. So luckily that helped.
0: okay i want dave on my show i want <laughs> i'm serious now i'm serious now i know where you live okay i want him on my show <laughs> honestly because there is there's always there are always three sides to a story yes yeah. hers yeah. and the truth yeah. so yeah. <laughs> i yeah. want to hear the other side there yeah. and yeah. sometimes the role of a man is to be there to support his wife. And a wise man knows when it is time to stand up. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, others, when you roll as a goofball, suits mm-hmm. you actually really well in the circumstances. And mm-hmm. I still try to find that that middle for me yeah. <laughs> sometimes yeah. I can sometimes I'm, yeah. I'm I'm rolling with the punches that I never do yeah. anything right and etc yeah. and sometimes yeah. I'm ready to kill over it if I mm-hmm. say if you, if you say one more negative word to me mm-hmm. now that I didn't you know you go shopping you go two hours out there you've got a boot full of things we don't need that we don't need that we don't. <laughs> so it's those little things that you know that mm-hmm. so so mm-hmm. I want so much to actually hear his side because there is, you had one way of dealing with the frustration, yet Mm -hmm. there was the same story playing out. The same same facts given, yet we all are different. We all respond differently. We all have a different background. Our upbringing is different. So the way how we deal with trauma, the things that get triggered in our deep, deep, brain where we are hardwired mm-hmm. when we were children for crying out loud there will have been quite some some different different things there and i think that's so important yeah. guys out there if you if you're going through something like that there is a there is no right answer no right mm-hmm. way of doing things but there is there are principles the, the principles that that empathy and and the need to understand the behavior of the other person if you can do that that is such a powerful step for you see why this person is angry and is shouting at you and see the level of distress that maybe is playing out in real time in front of you don't listen to the words the words are often designed to hurt and to give even more I don't know and the best thing you sometimes can do is literally give that person a big hug and, Mm. and just say, Hey, it's, it's going to be all right. I mean, how many fights did you two have in that, in that period?
1: You know, it really, um, I mean, we were apart so much, we really didn't have fights, but we got on each other's nerves a lot, I think. Um, So it, it honestly was um, we're not, you know, I mean, obviously we have healthy fights. We're not, you know, we're not like this, but we're also not, you know, Perfect. Um, but it was, it was just, it was a challenge. It was, you know, I would get annoyed with, you know, the things he did because he didn't do it my way, you know, and I had to give up control. Like he did school supply shopping. And, you know, I was in Florida at an aphasia center with Lauren, and he called me and said, I think the kids might have um taken advantage of me. And he told me what he spent on school supply shopping. I'm like, What the hell did you buy? And I'm like, he's like, Well. Maggie's pencil case alone was like $17. And I'm like, what? And he's like, well, she didn't like any of the ones she had. So her sisters told her to go find a makeup bag with a zipper and use that instead of a pencil case. And I'm like, Uh I'm like, so, I mean, they just totally, I mean, they got the fanciest of everything. I mean, they had the best school supplies of anybody in the school, I think that year. Uh So, I mean, those were the kind of things that, you know, which again, we laugh at, but I'm just like, You know, there were some, you know, there were some aspects of having dad be your primary caregiver that, you know, was win-win for everybody, you know, their grocery shopping was way different than when I did it. They're like, dad, dad's just a better grocery shopper than you. I mean, they had snack cakes galore, you know, So, um, so it's just, we definitely, you know, I just had to give up the reins, which is really hard for me because again, you know, our roles were more traditional, you know, I stayed home and I did everything with the kids and he would work a gazillion jobs to try to pay for things and to pay for their education. And I would say things through the years, like, Hmm. you know, I can get a second job. He's like, God, no, don't leave me at home with these kids. (laughs) So then, so we just had our roles and you know, it was hard for me to give that up because my whole role was now Lauren and which was tough.
0: Colleen, you're an amazing woman. There's no two ways around that. and your journey is so is so empowering to others because the way you describe it with humor in your book, the way you describe it with in, in real words, in, in such beautiful words is just just gorgeous. Come on, show us your book. show us. Ah,
1: there it is. <laughs> Murphys don't quit.
0: Indeed. Um, yeah,
1: and it- so, um, yeah, I'm super proud of it. And it's kind of the book that I wish I had in the beginning, because when I looked for brain injury books, everything was written like a medical journal mm. or it was somebody with a really bad concussion, you know, brain injury scale is huge, you know, and it wasn't until one time I was on a plane and I was reading, um, I think a chicken soup for the soul books. I don't know if you guys have those mm. there, but it was a brain injury edition. And every story I read, I got more and more frustrated because the the stories were either written by the person themselves. And here I was like five years out and Lauren couldn't read or write, or it was pretty mild. And then it finally hit me that the reason there weren't stories in that book about Lauren, people like Lauren was because they don't survive. And I needed to change the way I looked at that, you know, and everything is about perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to just change your way of thinking. And, you know, so I had to be grateful that she survived this instead of wishing that her recovery had been better. And and we're still not done. You know, we're going to still keep going, obviously. um, But it's been a miraculous recovery thus far, and we're not finished yet. Hmm.
0: Colleen Murphy, out there on a mission to tell the truth Mm -hmm. and tell it as it is, with hope, with tears, with it mm-hmm. being a very long endurance event that you can't speed up yeah. however much you try you can okay. do you can see so many things changing but this is a very 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 long time in the coming in the mm-hmm. making so okay. i'm actually very grateful that that you have decided to speak up about these kind of things because that is that is not necessarily something that a lot of people understand especially due to the nature of those films and and television series that we watch um there's a lot of Mm -hmm. bullshit in there so therefore thank you very much Mm -hmm. for showing the reality of brain injury survivors and of the loved ones who are often the unsung heroes the unsung sufferers where yes oh yes of course not ah, start start a little bit a little one more figure before we close up i mean for major trauma for major road uh, motor vehicle accidents we know that the chance of ptsd in the people uh, involved in the accident is about one in three ballpark figure so ptsd right. this oh. uh, uh you've got well, more than three months or six months, depending on the definition, uh, symptoms that are just horrendous. Um, the same PTSD and the same suffering is there for the loved ones. Not necessarily by definition, um, because by uh-huh. definition, you would have had to undergo a an incident that potentially is life-threatening to yourself or you perceive as such. Well, by definition, that's not not really the, the case for, to someone who watches someone else. But equally, that is, you know, it, let's, let's cast the, net, okay. the web a little bit, or the net a bit wider. Guys, the suffering is there, and you're giving that suffering a voice. And for that, I commend you. For that, I'm grateful to you, because we need to have more out there, a better understanding. And then maybe there will be, maybe we can turn this this world a little bit more positive. By being more empathic and more sympathetic to to the reactions of people who are often at the wit's end and at their, at at the height of their frustration, so I think that is uh, that is a really beautiful thing that you're doing there. Please keep going and it would be lovely to have you maybe in a year or two years back and to see actually where this journey has led you because we are all on a journey. So here you are. So this journey is is only now a snapshot we have taken today here in December 21. Um, Who knows what will happen? And who knows your daughter might be out there being a far more active contributor to this show. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah, for sure.
0: Look, Colleen Murphy, uh, it was an absolute honor to have had you on my show. I'm so grateful that you made time for me. I truly am.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It was
0: fun. Absolutely. And you guys out there, don't give up hope. Uh, there is hope. There is, there. life will change, regardless what the trauma is that has affected you. Uh, don't give up hope. Stay strong. Take one tiny little step every day to get you into the right right direction and with that you can do it and regardless where you're starting as long as you make progress you will be amazed what will happen over a period of time because this compound interest is starting to take to to take you know grasp and you are getting better in whatever it is so thank you so much colleen and you guys out there look after yourself bye
1: Bye-bye.